0: Hey folks, Matt Hunsaker here, welcoming you back to the State Tax Show. Today is part two in our series on state and local tax issues in M&A, this time from the tax professional's point of view. Hey folks, I hope that all of you are doing well, that you're staying safe, staying healthy, and probably most importantly, keeping your sanity. I also hope that you're doing something more enjoyable on Labor Day than recording a podcast. This week, we are continuing our foray into M&A transactions with part two of our series. Last week, we invited Erica Savoda and Ryan Gorshi into the virtual studio to give us some thoughts on salt from a deal lawyer's perspective. I hope you found that interesting and that it helped frame the context for the more substantive M&A issues we'll be discussing going forward. If you haven't heard it yet, please go back in the archives to last week and check it out. It was episode 111. This week, let's talk about some of the salt consequences and considerations in M&A. Maybe we'll get to all of them, but I suspect that we may need a part 3. You see, I've been a little lazy lately on letting my episodes get really long. So, I'll try to break this up into more digestible bits for you. Let's start with nexus. This is always going to be an issue in an acquisition, whether it be an asset acquisition or an equity acquisition. And let's take those two separately. First, when you acquire assets, and often the workforce is going to come along with that, you can potentially expand your company's nexus footprint into those states where you previously had no employees or assets. And this can often come as a big surprise and an expensive one if your company has a large tax base in those new states where it previously had no nexus. I dealt with a situation recently where I had a client who was buying some assets, and there were some assets kind of on the fringes of the core business, and those fringe assets were going to trigger a real nexus nightmare for the company. And They had tons of income in the states where those assets were located, but they didn't have nexus in those states. And so luckily, they were proactive and we were able to carve out those assets, carve them out of the deal, and we prevented a tax bill that probably would have swamped the value of those assets. Let me just break in here for a second and say that if you find yourself with assets in a state where you aren't really doing any business, you should carefully consider whether you might use the Wayfair decision's rejection of the physical presence nexus standard as a shield to nexus. I'll come back to that another time, but it's important to think through whether when the court rejected the physical presence standard in favor of a virtual or economic presence standard, whether that was a one-way street. In other words, if you are in a state and you don't really have virtual or economic presence, but you got a little bit of physical presence, I think you should be able to take the argument that you don't have nexus in the state. That's really just an aside, but I would like to come back and talk about that issue another time in some real depth. I think it's an issue that has not gotten as much attention as it should. Well, let's flip over and take a look at equity deals. In those situations, nexus issues come up in really at least two main ways. First, the target entity may provide activities in the state on behalf of the acquiring entity. I don't know, for example, say the target entity is doing customer service for you, the acquiring entity. Now, under Tyler Pipe and Scripto, and you really ought to go read those cases, those activities may be imputed to the acquiring entity under an affiliate nexus or independent contractor or uh, attributional nexus type argument. So even though the acquirer and target are separate entities, the nexus attributes of the target could get attributed back to the acquirer. This is a really rich topic, and we ought to do a show just on affiliate and attributional nexus, but you get the point for our purposes, right? Now, the second way Nexus may rear its head in an entity acquisition-type transaction is in a combined reporting state where the target and acquirer may be treated as being engaged in a unitary business. Now, there are some issues about exactly when that unitary relationship happens. Some states, and I think California is somewhat notorious for this, will say that companies are instantly unitary the day the transaction closes acquirer and target are engaged in a unitary business but other states wait until there is sufficient integration between the companies to really pass the test for a unitary business before they will consider them unitary it's really very much a fact driven type of issue the date they become unitary can have big implications especially if the entities want to offset income of one entity with losses of an acquired entity. They may want to accelerate the date that they become unitary. But let's get back to nexus and just assume that they are unitary. Does that affect the nexus footprint? Well, it can. The degree that it is an issue depends on whether the state follows a Finnegan approach or a Joyce approach in apportionment. For purposes of today's show, we're going to take some academic shortcuts here and just say that in a Finnegan state, the group essentially is treated as having nexus wherever any of the group members have nexus. In a Joy state, on the other hand, the group may still have nexus in all of the states that a member does business in, but individual group members who do not have nexus in the state get kicked out of the group's apportionment factor numerator. And the apportionment dilution that kicking them out of the apportionment factor numerator has, if you kind of take a back-of-envelope approach, it often works out to the group having the same nexus footprint as before the acquisition. Now, I say back-of-envelope because if the income and apportionment factors line up in certain ways, it can still have a big tax effect. But for our purposes today, I think that should be sufficient. And I'm sorry for being oblique here, but I'm saving all my Finnegan and Joyce stuff for a future episode where we revisit the MTC's model Finnegan statutory language project. So far we have focused on the incidental nexus implications that come from a business-oriented transaction. But it's important to keep in mind that you can often be even more proactive and enter into m a transactions purely to adjust your nexus footprint. For example, you may want to spin off assets or subsidiaries that are creating more nexus footprint than they're really worth. Now, I understand that rarely is that decision going to be made in a salt vacuum, but a good tax department, and I know you guys are good tax departments out there, is always staying on top of recommendations of transactions that can add value from the SALT perspective. Well, I wanted to get to apportionment today, but we'll have to visit that in a part three. I don't know if that'll happen next week. I've got to see how the news unfolds. If nothing critical happens, we'll just dive right into part three next week. Otherwise, we'll get to the news and then you can stay tuned and we'll get back to the M&A series just as soon as possible. Until then, this is Matt Hunsaker for the State Tax Show. The State Tax Show podcast is produced by Baker & Settler LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. The hiring of a lawyer is an important decision that should not be based solely upon advertisements. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.